Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha. Welcome back for a lot of you. And if it's your first Sunday, as Aaron said earlier, glad you guys are with us uh, for worship today. Um, yeah, that you made it in through the snow. And how much is out there, by the way, right now? Is there six, seven, five? It's not too bad. Nothing. What's that? It's, they're not plowed yet, right? They weren't this morning either, but that's pretty good. And that first service was, was more packed, <laughs> which says a lot about, Min- we're the Minnesota church, you know, when, when after snow like that, 9 a.m. is, is uh, more attended. But anyway, uh, well, it's good to see you guys. Uh, we are at the end of Genesis today, as uh, Peter was saying. Uh, Genesis 50 is today's text. If you want to turn your Bibles there or follow along on screen, I'll uh, read this in a second. But a um, little bit of context and by means of introduction, we're going to look at the, um, ahead, the theme of being, uh, or the theme of looking ahead to the Exodus today and to Christ. I'll explain the Exodus. Uh, some of that song pertained to it. Uh, a lot of you guys are aware of that story, but uh, it's the next book in the Bible. And so uh, the, the bridge is very seamless between the books, uh, theologically and historically and literarily. It's uh, very seamless, so we'll, we'll see some of that today and how important that is theologically for us. Uh, but at the end of the road, uh, it's about a 45 to 47-week series. I forgot to look exactly into what it was, our second longest ever. Um, and there's a lot. I was looking for kind of a way to sort of give a synopsis and um, summarize, which I'll kind of try to do today. We're going to mostly just preach Genesis 50 and uh, sort of let the chips fall where they may. But um, one thing I did want to say, and I, I look back at the first sermon I gave on this in January, that I know a lot of you every week are brand new to the faith or brand new to the Bible, and so we, we value preaching here, but also kind of give an example on a teaching level of how to approach the Bible, how to read it. There's a lot of confusing stories in here that don't make a lot of sense unto themselves. And so what we've been trying to show and then just kind of flat out say throughout this series is that one of the biggest mistakes people make in approaching a book like Genesis in the Bible is to treat it uh, unto itself or as, a, as, as if it were on an island of meaning. Uh, and you might hear a, a teaching on that or read a kid's Bible or look at a Shenazi video on social media that tries to summarize the book or read an academic journal or commentary on it and all alike. There might be th- some things out there that kind of take that road. And we've been trying to lead you away from that and, uh, and encourage you that you don't have to know Hebrew to understand this book. You don't have to know the complexities of the Bible to understand the complexities of the story. What you have to understand is the gospel. Because all the stories are about the gospel. The, the gospel is the, uh, there's actually a phrase in 2 Corinthians 3, I believe, in the, in the New Testament that says, through Christ, the veil of the Old Testament is lifted. And so it, as, we, as we read the Old Testament without Christ, it remains veiled. We kind of see foggily, we kind of see in part, but with Christ and his work for us on the cross and through his resurrection and what that, what that actually, how that serves as the climax of the whole story, the veil's lifted, and oh, we can see clearly, and oh, that's what that story meant, and that's why they did that. That's why they left that out. That's why they didn't say that. That's why they included that seemingly random detail that it's, it just seemed like it shouldn't have been there, but oh, now it, now it makes sense. And so if you know the gospel, you can understand Genesis a lot of times in ways that higher academics just fail to see because they approach Genesis as though it were written with presuppositions as though it were written unto itself by a singular author without God's help. As though, it did, as, as though it didn't and couldn't speak to the rest of the story. And so um, the reality is Genesis is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it's the beginning of his actual historical genealogy. It's amazing. So it's about his ancestors. It's, it's his story prefigured then. It's, it's his enemy defined and our enemy defined. It's his embody so, embodied solution anticipated. And it's his grace a lot of times over and against works 
that don't get us don't get us to God, don't get us to the solution, don't remedy our true problems, and don't give us true joy. And so it's those and, and that and many other uh, things, uh, but, it's, but it's about him. And so I, I want to encourage you guys with that as you take, sort of take this series with you, and if it's your first Sunday as you start to approach Genesis maybe for the first time, and just read the Bible, that you would always equip yourself with the gospel as you read and always look for him uh, like a treasure in a field uh, because cause he's in every text little context here. Uh, Jacob has just died, and so um, if, uh, again, if you're new, the, most of the book is about a family, the family of Abraham. So after sin came into the world, God promised to, to undo sin through a family, which ultimately leads genealogically to Christ. So that in and of itself tells us that Christ is coming uh, because he's a descendant of these people that are talked about in the story. But uh, it also, in the meantime, shows us that Jesus is uh, kind of here in a typological way. Like he's his, uh, his characteristics and the New Testament he's going to bring to the world eventually is, is kind of here as well. It's whispered. Uh, his sacrificial love uh, is there many in various ways. That song we sang uh, hit on that uh, as well, how he sees the outcast. It was, that was a reference to um, Hagar, if you um, uh, caught that too. We talked about her. Uh, but just God's character, how he's strangely but beautifully patient. Amidst all the stuff, all the junk, all the crap in the story that just keeps going, spiraling downwards, God is, God is uh, remaining patient and he's showing kindness and patience to sinners who don't deserve it. And that's, that's why we had messy stories like Judah and Tamar last week and so many other things about uh, just incestuous sexual sin and about Abraham selling his wife, uh, whoring her out basically, uh, prostituting her out to another man and... Um, uh, and how it says in Genesis 6 that God looked into the world before the flood and saw that man's intentions of his heart uh, were evil from his youth. That, 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 that no one in the world was seeking God. No one is seeking righteousness. And it's, it's just this worst possible picture painted. And yet God is, he, God is, is judging rightly. He's, he's judging these things, but also remaining patient and showing kindness. And we've been talking about that uh, as, as well. So... So Jacob, then, is the grandson of Abraham. He's renamed Israel uh, later in the story. His 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. It's important uh, details. You read the rest of your Old Testament if you didn't know that. Uh, but Jacob, in this, this passage, has just died. They're in Egypt, remember, seeking famine relief. And they've been there for some time now. And Joseph, um, one of his sons who um, was there under different circumstances, I can't summarize today, those couple of weeks ago, they've been sojourning. And uh, the, the story is basically here at the end about Jacob's funeral and some of Joseph's last words. And so I'll kind of let, just let that hang there and then we'll read it and I'll explain why that's important. Both are really important. Jacob dies. They have a funeral going back to Canaan, back to this promised land out of Egypt when they come back. That's important. And also um, what Joseph says too about how God's going to come visit them in the land and, and bring them back up to Canaan um, in full measure. So. Here we go, Genesis 51 to 26, most of this uh, chapter. It's probably best, actually, if you follow along on the screen. I took out a couple of uh, sections for time. After Jacob died, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many days are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, uh, please speak uh, in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. 
in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, uh, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father with him, uh, went up all the, all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there was a very great and grievous lamentation as he made a mourning for his father seven days. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because of the evil they did to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. All right, so as we uh, titled the sermon today, Ahead of the Exodus and to Christ, remember that Genesis it means beginnings, and it is just by definition then, but also literarily, the beginning of the story, not the end. It's, so it's not the beginning and the end, it's just the beginnings. And so this is just when it starts. It's the beginning of the gospel. It's the beginning of of God working in the world to redeem and restore all things. And so when we uh, talk about the Exodus then, we actually see Joseph uh, talk about it. I want to just define it here, though, if it's a new concept to you. I mentioned the Exodus is the, is the next book in the Bible. It means to exit out of or to, to be delivered up out of uh, something. So, so title-wise, if you just kept flipping your Bible, you'd see Exodus chapter 1, and it would continue with Israel's story in Egypt 400 years after these events we read about today. So pretty big gap in between these things. And in the meantime, over those 400 years, Israel grows from 70 people into a small nation within the confines of Egypt. New pharaohs arise and eventually see them as a threat or at least mistreat them and place them under heavy labor. Israel cries out for help, remembering Joseph's last words. And God, in response to that, with compassion, sends Moses and Aaron, his brother, to deliver them or exodus them out of, of Egypt through many signs and wonders and miracles and plagues, if you know the story, and, uh, and things like that. And eventually, bring them safely into the wilderness on the other side of the sea, and then eventually, back into the land of promise, or Canaan, 40 years later. And so why is this important? We've, we've been talking in the series um, uh, so far about this, and, and we'll get to this theologically, but um, so you see this in the passage first. We actually see the Exodus anticipated on a couple of levels. 
One, by what Joseph says. It's kind of the more obvious one at the end. But also we see it implicitly in Jacob's funeral. And so first in Joseph's words, we see, And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and uh, to Jacob. So Joseph just explicitly talks about it. Like, it's, it's going to happen. And they don't know it's going to be 400 years from this point at this juncture, uh, but we know that. 400 years from now, God will visit you. It, that's an important word, too, by the way, as well. When you read the Old Testament, God talks about, and others, about God visiting his people. Uh, note that Exodus language. It's actually in the New Testament, too. Which I'll, I'll mention one of those places um, today to tie that together. But uh, the less obvious one is actually how the passage begins, and we'll spend some time talking about this today, but it has to do with Jacob's funeral and how implicitly that points us uh, to the Exodus. It kind of resembles it. So remember when Joseph said, my father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father uh, there, and then I'll return. So remember, he's talking to Pharaoh. As we'll see in a second, there's other exoduses uh, in the Bible, the one that comes after this, where there is this talking to Pharaoh about letting them go up uh, to the land. And this is, this is kind of this exodus prefigured moment where really all of the household of, of Jacob, of Israel, are going up from Egypt to the land. Now they go back because this is, uh, for certain reasons, this is not the main one yet. God's not uh, doing what Joseph's asking for and predicting and prophesying about yet. But you do see this funeral procession ensue. And it's a hint that this kind of event is going to come. Basically, what's happening here with the funeral processional is going to happen on this kind of widespread national level uh, 400 years from now. There's going to be a return. And remember how important this is theologically. Uh, If you've been here for the series, maybe it's ringing some bells, the repetition of this uh, thematically. We've been talking about this with the phrase return motif attached to it. And uh, what I've been saying or we've been saying um, in reference to that or about that is the story of the Bible is, is basically a story of returning to the land of God's presence. Many ways to summarize it, of course, but that's basically what you're seeing in Genesis all the way through the Old Testament uh, unto Christ. Uh, and that is mankind being exiled from the Garden of Eden because of their sin, then the Old Testament being full of these stories of returning to the land that God promised them over and over again. And then Jesus coming to kind of complete or fulfill that motif or that idea. Kind of serving as that ultimate way that we would get back. Actually, Jesus uses those words in his ministry. He says, I am the way. I am here to redeem. Redeem was an actually an Exodus type word. It was to buy back from slavery. And Israel was enslaved. And so the idea of redemption came from the Exodus as well. But even just that simple idea when Jesus says, I am the way back. I'm returning sinners to God is Exodus-y uh, type language as, um, as well. So, so the Old Testament, in Genesis included, employs a lot of modes of representation and kind of typifying of this reality. It's, it's a repeated idea after sin comes into the world to kind of point ahead and show how, and to drive it into our heads, that the idea of being out of Eden, exiled from God's presence, away from the garden of blessing and eternal life, uh, that, 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 is, that is the problem that God has set out to, to remedy. And when he brings people back to this land, this physical chunk of land on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, uh, it served as this picture, this demonstration that God is calling sinners back to 
himself. God is calling people away from their old lives and from famine and from slavery to be with him in, uh, in the land. And, and actually, we talked then about, to link this with Christ fully, how in the New Testament, and I'll get here some more for examples of this, how Jesus talks in Exodus terms, actually literally as well, by using that word, that he has come to accomplish an Exodus for us in Jerusalem when he dies for our sins. And so if, if you're new to the Bible, even if you're not, it just, this is how one way to handle it kind of motif-wise or thematically, that the very beginning, we've seen, remember in this book, the very beginning sin occurs after creation and people are exiled from that garden. And story after story after story ensues. Not all identical or carbon copies, but they have a, a singular idea of being cast out of God's presence, but God's grace bringing them back. Sin exiles, God's grace returns people. Sin exiles, God's grace returns people. Sin exiles, God's grace returns people. And then we get to Christ, and the whole motif comes to an end because he's the final way back in. There's, there's a reason why it ends there, why all these themes and motifs end there, because Christ is the fulfillment of all of them, and there's no other s- solution or savior. There's no more sacrifice. There's no more return. There's no more exodus. There's no more um, priesthood. There's no more sacrificial lamb. There's no more bread of God's presence. None of that stuff. All those themes we could talk about. But the big one here for today's purposes being um, being returned. So we see it here in Genesis 50. So I I go here definitionally for those of you especially that this is a new concept, but in Genesis 50 it's being talked about and it's being shown. And that's important. It's not a good thing the people of Israel, God's people, are not in the land. It's kind of a theological and narrative and literary problem that God is kind of promising through Joseph here and showing through the funeral procession that it is going to happen. God will save. God will show up. God will deliver. God will hear cries. God will come and rescue yet again. It's happening yet again. We actually saw earlier in the book, maybe this rang a bell too, but Abraham had the same story. You guys remember that? In Genesis, how a famine happened, he went to Egypt, a pharaoh was mentioned, and they were down there, and God saved Abraham and Sarah and brought them back. You know, so it's also the Exodus was kind of being prefigured actually way back there as well, but that's, that was for a different different day so all right so remember this theme uh, and, and what i love about this passage though with that in place is it hints how the exodus will occur as well not just that god will exodus his people he's, he has a pattern of doing that and that that's our story too as christians which will further connect dots here in a minute but it hints at how the exodus will uh, occur and thusly how future exoduses then uh, will occur as, as i was saying and the answer to that question of how it will occur and by what means, the Genesis 50's answer is through or by means of a death. This is what it's saying. Remember, Genesis is getting more specific as time goes on as to how exactly God is going to save people. So remember last week, I think it was, or two weeks ago, we, we moved from God promising the, the vague or the general, I will show up and save you, I will bless you, to this is how I will do it. This is how I will bless. It's through suffering. Joseph's story, we talked about that. It's through rejection. It's through intercession. It's through death to resurrection. And so we tied Joseph's story with Christ and all that, if you were, if you were here for that. But even here as well, as we talk about the theme of Exodus, or coming up out of an old land to the land of God's presence, or a new Eden, 
even here we see this theme of death um, arise. So let me show you what I mean by this. We walk through this in a, in a few levels. So first, in this story, Jacob's death is what actually led to the return to the land. Do you guys notice that? Michael Belcher says in his commentary that Jacob, in his death, is showing the way out of Egypt to the land promised to his descendants. Jacob's death was the circumstance, par excellence, and what actually incited Pharaoh to let them go mourn. We could argue that it had to happen. They wouldn't have gone back to the land if this death didn't occur first. It was the circumstance. It was the means by which they processed up and they exited out. And that Pharaoh actually let them. It was that, it was that key element that incited Pharaoh to let them go um, as well. It's basically like Joseph asking for a day off of work or something, for a bereavement. You know, it's basically what it amounted to because he was number two in the land. Can I go and mourn? And he said, and he said yes. So, so thematically, narratively, it's what we see. is A death occurs, an exodus-like event happens. Then later, the next book uh, in the Bible, which I've kind of been summarizing, in regards to the actual exodus story, after Israel's enslaved there for 400 years, like I was talking about, and God sends plagues through Moses to incite their release, the final straw for Pharaoh is the plague of the death of the firstborn. God's final and most severe plague, the tenth and most severe, was to kill all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, man and beast, it says, man and animal. And what God says to Israel, actually, through Moses then, too, this is a special thing that the other plagues didn't really come along with. They were spared them all, but God actually says to Israel, in connection with this final plague, the same will actually befall you. All of your firstborns, Israel, will die tonight unless you slaughter a lamb and take its blood and paint it over your doors. And so in Exodus 12, 13 says, this is God speaking, when I see the blood... When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so the death of the Passover lamb, and you could say the death of the firstborns, two of Egypt, but the death of the Passover lamb immediately preceded the escape and the exodus of God's people from, from Egypt. It wasn't until that night that they escaped. It, it, be, it became such a major part, actually, of, of the uh, life of Israel subsequently, the, the part of the Exodus event too, that they remembered it indefinitely through a feast called Passover, where a lamb was slaughtered, eaten, and remembrance of God's goodness, kind of past salvific goodness, uh, ensued for about a week. So we have two things here, the death of Jacob and the death of a Passover lamb, both occurring first and in connection with the, the Exodus. And here's where all this is headed. If the exodus prefigured in Jacob's funeral and the exodus proper, which is the book after Genesis, we've just been talking about that one, if they were both accompanied by and enacted by a death, then we should expect that the final exodus or future exodus is, would be two. Specifically the one associated with Jesus. And that's exactly what we see. God does not just let us escape from sin. It's not, it's not a static thing or it's kind of a random thing. It's very precise and specific and it's a fulfillment of the exoduses that came before. So God is not just, just let it, he actually causes our escape. He enables the escape with the death of his own son who is called in the New Testament the true Passover lamb. 
A death, actually, the Bible says, had to occur in connection with our exodus because it occurred with the ones that prefigured it. And it becomes the true exodus uh, because it pertains to sin, not physical slavery uh, to any kind of nation, but an exodus from slavery to things that we know are bad, but we can't stop doing. Or we know are good, but we can't get ourselves to do. It's that kind of slavery. Worship, but we can't quite get ourselves to do that. It's, it's slavery to our old selves and to self-deification and to re- the, just the, the whole wholesale rejection of God. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, just to support this in the New Testament, I mentioned this. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so it says here, his blood is what saves us. Painted by faith over the doorposts of our hearts. Painted by faith over the doorposts of our hearts. That's what saves us alone. So not only is the Bible connecting this thematically, but it's telling us a lot about what it means to be saved here. You know, back, back in the story, and this is why it's helpful to know both stories and, and the whole of the Bible is, there are aspects of our story as Christians that we get a glimpse of in the Old Testament that we just don't in the New. The New Testament might say, you've been redeemed from your sins, Exodus language. God has visited you and exodus you out from your sin. That's kind of a prepositional statement way of, beautiful, right? That's the gospel. We need to receive that. The Old Testament might show it. It might give a mode of representation or a, a, a type or a, an image or a whisper in story form of that same idea just in narrative form. So we get it from both angles genre-wise. And so when we go there, you know, we go back to see well, what exactly was required of people. What, what exactly was required of Israel to be saved? What exactly was required? It alone was the blood, Right? Does Moses say, it's, it's coming, it's tonight, it's, it's a couple hours away. You have a couple hours here to go out and serve the poor in your neighborhood, and then you'll be saved from God's wrath. Does it say that? Does it say, keep the Ten Commandments first? Oh, wait, they're not written yet. There, there is no law. Just the blood. Alone. There's no precondition. None. Except Look at the blood, pin it over your door, then God will look at the blood. See, see what he looks at? When he's looking at your life, sinner, like, you, like me, I'm a sinner. When he looks at us, he looks for the blood of Christ being painted by faith over us. He loves us. He wants us to escape from our sin and our pasts and our doubts and our disbeliefs. He, he's, if he didn't love Israel, he wouldn't have done this. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't have sent his son. But see, the the freeing truth for us who have fallen short is that there's no precondition except to paint the blood. Paint the blood, paint the blood over the door. Bible, in in the New Testament, it says, say by grace, not by works. In the Old Testament, same truth. Paint the blood. When I see the blood, not when I see how much you've done for me. I encourage you to read this in the context and kind of get a full picture of just how much grace is here and how much good news. And to see your story in that, our, the church's story in that, how freeing that is for people who have fallen short, for people with doubts. You know, as certainly Israel had. Not, not everybody was thinking, oh, this is going to be great. I don't fear this at all. This is going to work out perfectly. Let's watch some 
some more TV, you know, or something like that. People feared, probably. They doubted. They had some disbeliefs. They were full of sin. And yet if they heard God say, slay the lamb and paint its blood, and they did it, if by faith they did that, if they said, what God's provision is, I will do. What God's provision is, what God says is enough, I will believe those people were saved. And here's the good news. God says Jesus is enough for you. Do you believe it? Do you want to believe it afresh? Have you never believed it yet? When we say Christianity is not a religion of morality, we actually mean that. Because the Bible actually teaches it. The, the law came in for certain reasons, but all this happens before it and aside from it to show us Christ ahead of time. The Passover lamb's blood here was aside from law, just like Jesus' blood was aside from law. Which is not an excuse to sin, it's to say it, that won't save. Law never got Israel out of Egypt, right? Did, 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 did the law make Israel escape? Did Ten Commandments, did conditions, did do this or else make Israel escape? Or is it just the law? Gloriously just the law. Or just the blood, sorry. Just the blood, right? Just the blood. And this, that glorious absence of law is uh, this kind of complementary beauty, right? That it's just not there. All right. Luke 9, 22 again. Notice the urgency of Christ when he says, I must, must suffer many things. I must be rejected. I, I must be killed. And I must on the third day be raised. Why? Because I want to atone for the sins of people. There's no other way to be saved. But also, I think the must is embedded in Old Testament prophecy. And what we call typology, or these types of Christ ahead of time, types of redemption ahead of time. He had to die because there would be no ultimate second exodus if he didn't. Because no exoduses occurred aside from deaths. A death had to occur. Genesis 50 is a thing. There aren't no 49 chapters. Genesis 50 is there. So Jesus had to die. He had to suffer. And he had to be raised up because of how Genesis is, is written. Luke 9, Jesus at the transfiguration spoke with Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory. And, and they spoke of his departure. Uh, the literal Greek there is Exodus. Which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So if you know some of Jesus' story, he grew up and spent his first 30 years basically in Galilee, which is a northern uh, province up at the Sea of Galilee. He only went south of Jerusalem once for a week of his life, his last week of life, uh, to minister, to fulfill prophecy, to kind of confront the Pharisees and Sadducees, knowing he was going to be, knowing full well he was going to be rejected, orchestrating the whole thing. He went to die. But what I love about this is that it says, what was he going to do? He was going to accomplish a departure. It's kind of a weird thing to say, right? Um, accomplish an exodus for us at Jerusalem. He came to redeem and to buy us back from sin. He came to accomplish that for us. And then Hebrews 9. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new testament, a new covenant, unlike the old. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. That's land language, by the way. So, you know, saying you too are called to a land, and I am spiritual. It's not modern-day Israel. It's, it's a spiritual land. Promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them, Exodus language, 
from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So spiritual deliverance from slavery to sin, again, is accompanied necessarily by a death, not just randomly, but since a death has occurred, since the death occurred, uh, we can be redeemed. Since the death occurred, we can be exodus. Since the death occurred, we can be freed. It's all on God's watch, right? It's entirely by his work and his effort. He's doing the heavy lifting here. Genesis 50, 25, uh, in in today's passage, Joseph says, God will surely visit you. And Luke 1, this is kind of our Advent connection for today. Gotta have one, right? Uh, Luke 1, 68, this is, is, um, I believe, Zechariah speaking in connection with John the Baptist's birth, but then also, by extension, Jesus' coming birth. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed, Exodus language, his people. So all throughout the Old Testament, when Joseph is saying God will visit, and he did visit through Moses, but then when the prophets start talking about another Exodus that was going to come, and a better one, a spiritual one, when there were more, and when the first one didn't really do it, didn't take away sin here, like it took them to a different land, and it was better for certain reasons, but it didn't. When there's a yearning for that kind of redemption in Exodus, you know, and, and Zechariah is foreseeing this. He's seeing, oh, the, this, this new Elijah is going to precede the coming of the Messiah, my son, John. It, it, God is visiting now us through him and his ministry and ultimately through the one he will give way to, Mary's child, Jesus Christ. So here at the end of Genesis, we're, we see yet again that God gets more clear as to how exactly the story is going to unfold onward, all the way to Jesus. And that is, the story is going to continue to be about an exodus from slavery and foreign lands and return to God's presence. And somehow, strangely, it's going to be accompanied by a death. It's going to be accompanied by a death. And what's beautiful about that is that it's not our death. And it's not an animal's death. It's God's death. It's his one and only son. Remember we saw that back with Abraham and Isaac and that song, El Shaddai, we just sang, kind of mentioned that. But how do we see God's love? Abraham almost sacrificed his only son, Isaac, until God, the, the angel, stayed his hand and he didn't. And God provided that ram. See, it's not just an animal. This is why this exodus is better why this redemption's better. It's not an animal, and he's not asking us to die. God himself, who made you guys, who made me, who made this world, who made the snow this morning, who made everything, even though it fell away from him, he didn't give precondition. He didn't say, do this for me. He didn't ask to be served. He came into the world through lowly circumstances because he's going to die in lowly circumstances came to die for us, willingly in love so that God's justice could be done against sin, someone could die for it and pay the penalty for it, and his mercy might come in too and and marry the justice sort of at at the cross. He could show both characteristics, grace and mercy, but also justice and wrath could come together perfectly. I just want to make sure you guys are seeing this, that 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 is an intentional, that's a big part of Genesis as we finish this series. God goes, he, he starts from the general, I will bless you even though the whole shooting match is cursed to this is how I will bless. 
I will bring you back to this is how I will bring you back. There's a trajectory here. There's a, a building like a snowball rolling down a hill and getting bigger and bigger and bigger, which mostly just happens in cartoons. But, you know, if that were to happen in real life, uh, it, it's, it moves forward. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until we get to Christ. And he says, enough. I'm the end. I'm the goal. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the true way. Though Israel found their way, God found their way back for them many times in the Old Testament, I am the final way. And by faith and by my blood, you too will be saved. So our response then, I think, is uh, two things here, faith and hope. Um, I'll go through these kind of quick, but I've kind of been mentioning. In, in verse 24, it says, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you, bring you back. And then verse 25, Joseph made this, this is interesting, made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will visit you again, and I want you to swear that you'll carry up my bones from here. So I'm going to die, make sure you go into my coffin, and, you know, who got that job, right? Pull the bones out of the thing and throw them in a bag. I don't know what they did, but carry my bones up from here. And we know they do. In Joshua 24, later in the story, it actually mentions this in the book of Joshua that they brought Joseph's bones up, and, 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 and he was buried. So it's cool how that comes up later as well. But look what it says in Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, this is in the New Testament, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus, which is insane, right? By faith, he did that, and he gave instructions concerning his bones. And so for us, then, we talk about faith as Christians. I, I think this is um, easy to skip over, and, uh, but, but we can't. We, we, this is the point. Is Joseph's doing something here that's a model for Christians, He's mentioning the Exodus. You know, and as you, as you tie kind of a, a little bit of, you connect dots and tie a bow on that biblical theological idea, it's easier to do this because we've gone through it as well. We too have an Exodus. And so uh, the question is, do, do, we, do we do this? Do we say to ourselves and each other, are we the means by which God speaks and are we the ones being spoken to about this type of, of redemption? Do we talk about the blood of Jesus? Do we... Or do we sanitize the gospel and not talk about the cross that much? We lose everything when we do that. Do we talk about grace? Or do, do we kind of add to the first Exodus story by adding law? You know, like Joseph never did that here either, right? He's, he's a man who's actually preaching to his brothers. He's not saying, clean your life up. But he's just saying, this is going to happen. God is going to visit you. There's no condition but simply to believe and to act on the fact that God is going to, to redeem and to show up and to save. It's the same for Christians. Joseph's saying this, and he's saying to believers, do you believe this is going to happen? Prepare your heart. Believe God is good. He's not coming to judge. He's coming to save. That's why Jesus says, I didn't come to, to condemn but, but to give life and to save. All who believe in me will be redeemed and be, and be saved and have eternal life. So <clears throat> I think there's something to say here to Christians, to all of us, wherever we are, uh, just, I mean, to the Christians, of course, in the room, is do this. Mench and, and to non-believers, you know, as, you, as you minister to people who are not saved yet, mention this. Mention it. To all people, whatever you've done, mention the second exodus. Mention the exodus pertaining to Christ. And be preachers, be evangelists, be 
singers of the gospel, to your own heart, to your kids, to your spouse, to your friends, to your church. Uh, This is why we do this every week, because Joseph did this to his family um, in in a whispering kind of way thousands of years ago. Second is hope. Uh, Verse 20 says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's a fascinating verse. (laughs) Loaded uh, for ramifications for us. But Joseph is saying here, remember what happened to him? His brothers sold him into slavery. They effectively killed him. Uh, But he was brought to Egypt, and God did amazing things there in his life. He was raised up to be second in charge to save people from the ensuing famine. And so many people were saved. If you kind of just follow the logic or trail the story backwards, Joseph's thinking, you killed me. God intended that so that all this would happen in the middle so that here we'd be in a place where we have storehouses of grain to feed anybody from the the entire region who comes because they can't grow grow it in their own land because of the famine. Joseph's saying, Your evil against me, though it was your evil, it wasn't Satan's work. It was their evil, um, but it wasn't just a a run of bad luck. It was actually God's work behind their work. And though God isn't evil, it was their evil, the brother's evil, he subverted their evil intentions and actually used it to bring about a greater good. That's what this verse is saying. What you intended for evil, God intended the evil that you intended for good. You intended for evil, God wanted good, so he actually intended that evil to kind of take this windy road through the scenic route, through the story, to the end we get to this beautiful place of redemption. If Joseph wasn't thrown into the well, tens of thousands of people would have died due to a famine. It was God's work. And if this is the case, then the ramifications for this are, are huge. And we, we've said this a lot in this series, but um, I mean, if, if this is true, then it means the cross was not an accident, right? I'm saying this. This is why this, should, this doctrine shouldn't be hard to swallow or shocking for Christians because at the core of our belief system is a God who intended the cross, the worst of abominations and evils, to bring about the greatest of goods. Salvation for all who believe. Right, we believe that. If, if I were to ask you who intended the cross, was it God or Satan or people, what would we say? It's kind of all of them, right? I mean, Satan incited Judas to betray Christ, but Christ is kind of organizing the whole thing, and it's clearly God who's, who's speaking about his son's death even here. It's always God's plan A. So it's, it's overly simplistic to say all the evil things that happen in the world must just be Satan's realm, all the good must just be God's. This is not Star Wars here. This is, this is not equal and opposite sides of the force. This is God, who, who, who is never surprised by anything, who, who himself has entered into our suffering to overcome it, who even here can use the worst of things to bring about the greatest of things. Not that he's a partner with evil, because he's not evil. He hates evil. He loves justice. But it is to say he's in control. And because he's in control here in this story and at the cross, it is to say he's in control of the evil and the suffering and the injustice and just the hardship in your life as well. It's kind of a how much more argument. If he can do it there, 
on the cross, that's the biggest of things, how much more can he work through and remain sovereign over other evils, smaller ones, but very real ones in my life. Um, and, and the reality is, he, he, you know, he has. He's, he's dealt with them on the cross. He's dealt with evil, through evil. And he can do the same. So it's not befitting then of the church to lose heart. You know, I, I think, and it's easy to say, I know, and um, some of you are thinking, yeah, amen. Others are like, what? Because you're suffering. Um, all, all of us will. It's, but the reality is Jesus speaks this way. He's, he basically says it's not befitting for the church to lose heart. Don't lose heart. Uh, don't go through crippling fear in the midst of suffering. Because we have this kind of God. It's not just that's a statement there to kind of hold on to. It's because of this verse. Because at the cross, God intended that and brought about the greatest of good. So how much more can he do that uh, with us? It, it actually, it's, in, it's inconsistent to say God used evil on the cross to bring good, but he can't use the evil of my cancer to bring good. That is in every way uh, theologically and philosophically untenable. And Joseph knows this, a man who suffered more than most of us. This is why the Bible says suffering leads to hope. Because our suffering makes us think of Jesus' sufferings and, and what that means for us, you know, which leads us to hope uh, that God's in control and God has saved us. Well, that's right. I suffer. So is Jesus. He can empathize. And he suffered for me to actually save me. It's not just ecstatic suffering. It, it does something for me. I know some of you guys uh, know this person and have heard this this uh, past week that there's a gal who lives in the cities named Johanna Watkins, um, who I know um, Chris Thompson knows. Oh, Tasha, you know. Uh, Justin, you too? Um, maybe someone else. Yeah, I, I don't know her. I, um, and I, she's making national news now, I think, right? The national news. Um, she had a Facebook live feed to the Gospel Coalition site. Uh, and I'll actually try to post this in the city so you guys can see this, but she Facebook lived her... Um, testimony so if you don't know her she's allergic to like everything including people she i don't think she's been in a, in a room with her husband for months years months at this time yeah but um can't hardly do anything and so she's allergic to her husband so she's in the safe room and she's here in the cities and they're, they're building this i think a wing on her house to kind of just um to deal with this and get her in the safe room and all that but i think her siblings can come in and she can have this moment of, oh, I'm not going to an anaphylaxis for just a moment here. Something with the sibling thing. So, so I heard through uh, Chris Thompson. But um, in any case, crazy, crazy stuff. And if you guys, you guys got to listen to her testimony. It's just, it's, uh, did you guys listen to it? Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. But it made me think it's appropriate this week because of this verse. She's a Christian uh, who's, again, in this state. She, she, in her video, said, I'll quote her. This first one's a paraphrase, sort of. Second one's a direct quote. But she says, this has been the greatest encouragement to me. That God suffered like I am. That's a direct quote. He took on my sufferings and absorbed my sin to fight it and end it. And then she says, by chaining my body with disease, he has freed me from the chains of self-trust. And I, I know I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, it's, it's hard not to just tear up, you know, and to think about your own story and sufferings. And, and I, you know, but I'm thinking of Joseph here throughout this week, and I think, I mean, I just got to say this, I'm saying this to myself too, uh, th that is something to strive after. That is a picture of a very mature Christian who understands theology and God's character really well. Just like Joseph. 
God intends evil for good. He just does. We have to believe that to get the cross. So we have to be we have to believe to be Christian, honestly. We can wrestle with that, of course, but that's the core of what you believe if you're a believer, if you didn't realize that. Now apply that to your life. Do you believe that's true elsewhere in your life? Jesus' sufferings were a gift. Our sufferings can be seen in a similar light. All right, more to say, but let me just close with this. It's, it's hard to summarize a year-long series, so um, let me just say this. I, I think um, th- this, this whole book is basically about two things. It's about God visiting us and God saving us by grace, not by works. Uh, like, like Joseph looking ahead here in the, de- in the narrative, looking ahead, these stories are not ends in of themselves. They all look ahead. And Joseph knows this, so should we. And specifically at the end, here's how the book ends. Through a death, you will be saved. Through a death, you will exodus out of your old life and you'll go to the land of promise. Through a death and through a Passover lamb's blood, through the Christ and his work for you. That's what Genesis is getting at. And, uh, and then relatedly, you know, this book and actually your life and this book, it's not, they're not really about you. You're not insignificant, but your life, your marriage, your sufferings, you know, your, your story, they're not ultimately about you. They, they help tell a greater story. And so does this book. You know, Joseph's life, it's not really about him. Jacob's death, it wasn't really about him. It was about Jesus. And there's something pretty powerful in that. You can, you can apply that. You can passively receive it. Both are good. But remember that. Uh, there's something bigger going on than, than you, what you have to give to God. It's more about what he has to give to you, and he has to give a lot. So let's uh, close here and sing one last song.